Thanks very much to Sandra and the worship team for just leading us into to God's presence and just helping us to get a perspective on this book of Job that we're going to continue to look at tonight. So, a few, two or three readings, well, but three. So, we're going to start off first in Job chapter 3 from verse 1. So, that's Job chapter 3 from verse 1. And we read that after this, the disasters and his friends arriving, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, May the day of my birth perish, and the night it was said, A boy is born. That day, may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine upon it. May darkness and deep shadow claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm its light. And then on to chapter 9. On to Job chapter 9. And I'm going to read this time from verse 14. Just from verse 14 to 17. And it says there, How can I dispute with him? How can I find words to argue with him? Though I were innocent, I could not answer him. I could only plea with my judge for mercy. Even if I summoned him and he responded, I do not believe he would give me a hearing. He would crush me with a storm and multiply my wounds for no reason. And then from chapter 19, verse 23 to 27, we're reading all these different things that were said by Job. That's Job 19. Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, Yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. We'll just come and pray. Father, we pray that tonight as we come before your word that we'll have that that same kind of honesty, that same kind of yearning for you, that we too will search for you, seek you, that we might know you, and that we might glorify you in our lives, in our situation, right here, right now. This we pray in Jesus' name. Well, we're here tonight... uh, Again, on the third stage of what's really been, what is really a whistle-stop tour through Job. Now, just to remind you, in our first look at Job, we looked at principles and personalities, at some of the key principles, the main personalities that we encounter in this book. And then last Sunday, we began an overview of the main poetic section of this book, from chapter 3 to chapter 27, by focusing first 
on the friend's contribution by looking at just what Job's friends had to say to him. And here we, we began by looking at the problem. And the problem that they had was that they took generalities as absolutes. They took general principles and then applied them in a wooden, literalistic, impersonal way, an absolute way to Job's particular situation. And so they tried to offer an easy solution to a broken heart. You see, they deluded themselves into thinking, believing that every mystery in life could be dealt with by their delving into their little box of principles, their little box of, of slogans. And this led them to try to give easy, simplistic, part answers to a broken-hearted man. <coughs> also, their legalism then led to judgmentalism. For because Job refused to buckle down and just agree with them, go along with them, well, they saw that as an attack on their little world, on their narrow understanding of life, of faith, and of God, on that which had enabled them to live their lives to that point without thinking too deeply, without thinking too long. So you see, when, when Job refuses to cooperate with them, when he refuses to agree with them, their response then is to attack him and to try to bring him to his knees. And their attacks against him build up, for they begin just by trying subtly to get him to surrender, just yield to them. But then it escalates and they end up by making outrageous accusations against him that are designed to destroy, calling him, first of all, the most wicked of men. Job 22, verse 5. Is not your wickedness great? Are not your sins endless and then they call him an out and out hypocrite Job 22 13 and 14 you say what does God know does he judge through such darkness thick clouds veil him so he does not see us all of this guiding us step by step towards what the root problem of these men actually was. And that is the, the heart of their faith. There stood a code, there stood a rule book, rather than a relationship with a loving, compassionate, gracious God. And so because of this, when they were faced with what here was a situation of outrageous suffering, all they had to offer were words, statements. But we moved on to look at the need, at Job's need, which was at this point quite simply for sympathy and comfort. He needed somebody to identify with him. He needed somebody to get alongside him. He needed somebody ready at a practical level to try and ease his pain, to lift his burden. You see, what he needed was someone. What he needed were people who, because their hearts were filled with the love and the compassion of God, who were ready in some way, to some extent, to try and enter into his pain, into that situation, and just to care for him, just to, to love him. 
Now this week, what we're going to move on to look at is Job's response, his response to this advice of his friends. And we're going to begin here by looking first at the anguish Job feels. For you see, we'll never really be able to understand what Job says in the midst of his suffering and what he has to say to us in turn. We'll never be able to really understand it until we set it into the context of not just his physical, but his emotional, and above all, his spiritual suffering. And one thing I believe we can say about Job's suffering, his pain, and his anguish, is that he certainly expresses it. You see, Job doesn't try and hide what he's really feeling, what he actually feels in this firmness of his suffering. He doesn't, for in chapter 3 here, he curses the day of his birth. Curses that day. How many have said the same but with far less reason? I wish I'd never been born. Irrational, don't, don't be confused here. For although Job curses the day of his birth, yet he's not doing here what Satan had set out to try and get him to do. That is to curse God. There's a big difference between asking why was I ever born to saying, I no longer trust you, God. And there's much going on in this the central section of, of Job. There's much that goes on in the, the same vein as this, with Job in his suffering, moving between a whole wide range of emotions. For at times he, he seems to reach a place of faith where he can say that even if it took resurrection from the dead to vindicate him, that God would do it. Shut Job. 1925 to 27, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. And yet at other times, and just a little bit earlier in this book, Job questions whether God would even give him a fair trial to prove himself. Job 19, 14 to 17. How can I dispute with him? How can I find words to argue with him? Though I were innocent, I could not answer him. I could only plead with my judge for mercy. Even if I summoned him and he responded, I do not believe he would give me a fair hearing. Now, you know, what, what strikes me here with all of this is just how true to life it all is. Just how this reflects so, so very well the, the, the range of emotions, the range of experience that so many true believers bounce back and forth between when serious suffering comes their way. At times, just so aware of God. He's so near. But then at other times, at other moments, when they feel just so desolate and so alone, when they feel as if they're just hanging on to their faith, just hanging on to God by their fingertips. But there are one or two observations that, that I'd just like to make here and share with you here that arise from this. And the first one is, don't you think that if Job was a Christian of this generation, 
and certainly a Christian of a generation or so ago, that he would be criticised, that he'd be seen as letting the side down here by exhibiting these kind of emotions and then expressing them in just the kind of honest, straight out, no frills way that he does. Don't you think so? That, that some would think that, that by behaving in this kind of way, that Job was here demonstrating a lack of a true spiritual maturity. That this showed that he wasn't really living close to the Lord, that he wasn't really living in the victory of the Lord, because if he had been, then he would have been able to emerge, even from trials like this, unruffled, unperturbed. There are Christians who think like that, aren't there? Maybe we think like that, or we have, or maybe we've been affected by that kind of feeling, at least to the extent that we, that we feel a degree of guilt and shame when the hardships and sorrows of life affect us. You know, we feel somehow that if we were really close to God, if we were really spiritual, if we were really the Christians we should be, then this wouldn't be so. We wouldn't feel like this. And so this points to some kind of serious spiritual deficiency within us. Well, let me tell you then, I believe that that kind of thinking has got absolutely nothing to do with biblical Christianity, with biblical spirituality. Now, I believe the roots of that kind of thinking are actually in Greek philosophy that's affected Christianity over the centuries. Stoicism, the main one. If you see Stoicism, it teaches that we are to be like men and women of stone. That we've to have a, a steely grip, a control, or at least that we've to be able to hide our feelings, show no emotion. And it's only as we live like this, serenely gliding through life without a problem, never showing that anything's touched us, that we're really living how we should and that we're really on track with God. But how does that fit in, Ashi? With the Job of whom the Lord said, remember, that there is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil doesn't, does it? You see, the fact is that God has chosen to create, not statues of, of stone or bronze, but he's chosen to create men and women of flesh and blood. Men and women with feelings, with emotions. Men and women who are individuals and unique and who react in different ways. And you see, I believe that tells us that God doesn't want or expect an identical, deadpan reaction to whatever life hands out to us. No, you see, God made us in the way we are, and God expects us to feel. God expects us to hurt. God expects us to cry out to him in our need. That's what God, I believe, wants. And as we turn to him in our need, if we cry out to him as we should, then God will respond. You see, God expects and God can handle our struggles and our cries as we suffer. 
Because God knows that it's in this way that we will grow and mature in faith. He knows that's the way. And that's what, what matters to him. That we come out of the other side holding on, trusting still, having grown through what we've endured in faith. But that unmoved attitude to tragedy. I know that all of us differ in personality and maybe for some people to a large degree this is just them. But for the vast majority of us that is unnatural, unreal. And it's not usually a sign of deep spirituality. To the contrary, that kind of attitude holds us back from the very struggle that actually will lead to a deeper spirituality. But maybe, I don't know, you're wondering here, but how does what's being said here fit in with what the Bible says about self-control, particularly about self-control being a fruit of the Spirit, being one of the signs that the Holy Spirit of God is alive and is at present and at work in us? But again, you see, the problem here, I believe, is that we so often have misunderstood and misinterpreted what the Bible means by self-control. Control and, and I think it's that same unwitting influence way back of, of Greek philosophy yet again. Because you see, when we think of self-control, we do think generally, I, I believe, we think about not showing our emotions. That is self-control. But biblically though, self-control is much more than that. It's much more positive than that. It's not about suppressing our emotions. Rather, it's much more about controlling and mastering and then directing the energy of our our emotions in a right and positive way. Francis Anderson, and I recommend his commentary on Job to you, by the way. It's deep, I think. It's relatively simple. And it's short, which is a winning combination as far as I'm concerned. But... He says that what underlines biblically the word that we translate self-control is that self-mastery that releases the energies of an athlete into a superb performance. Now, I believe that's what we find here in Job. Here is a real man, a man who feels the pain of what's happened to him, who feels it physically, emotionally, spiritually, who struggles with this and expresses that struggle, but who ultimately, as we will see, as he turns to God in this, is able to use the spiritual energy of this terrible experience to grow and to glorify God. And this we clearly see, or certainly the signs of it, And what we're going to just move on now to look at, and that is the answer Job gives. But but before we we look at the answer that Job finally reaches, let me first say just a little bit about the manner here in which Job dealt with his critical friends. That is, he listens to what they say, and he obviously evaluates it. He doesn't agree with it, and he lets them know that later, and he's right not to, because there's no sin in his life we know that would ever warrant what he's gone through. 
But although Job is at times firm in the answers that, that he gives as he goes on through here to his friends, I would ask you to notice if you read through it, but he doesn't get angry with them. He doesn't retaliate. He doesn't seek to get revenge. He doesn't look to get even. I think just how Christians today need to learn to, to deal with, with critics and criticism in at least a similar kind of way, in a way that, that demonstrates that the Holy Spirit actually is in control of our lives. So I would say to you, when you're criticised, evaluate it. Take time to evaluate it. That is first. Look at the critic's life. Look at the person who's criticising you. Is this someone whose life actually bears the marks of a close walk with God? Does their life show signs of his life? Do you see in their life holiness, grace, love, faithfulness, etc.? I'll say if you do, you've got to at least listen and take seriously what's being said to you. Then move on from that and evaluate what's being said. Really evaluate it. In the sense of be open, be honest. Is there truth? In what's being said. Though it hurts, ask yourself, is there truth? Maybe it's not all true, but is there at least an element of truth in what's said? And as you do this, remember that although what is said might hurt, yet as is so often the case, again, it's not always so, but often it is, that it is the very best friend, it is the person who cares for us the most, who will say to us the things that we perhaps don't want to hear, but we need to hear. Proverbs 27, verse 6, that we referred to last week, I think is a verse that most of us need to really deeply underline in our Bibles. The New American Standard uh, quote of this. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. And the other side of this is, is when we don't respond well to criticism, what does that say about us? You know, when we get our backs up, well, you know, we're all different. But often I think there are issues of pride and of insecurity and things of that nature that need to be faced up to and dealt with. You know, during the week I was looking around about this and I came across some information about Abraham Lincoln. For you see, widely today he's now regarded as America's greatest president. And most Americans, and rightly so, take enormous pride in having had such a leader, especially when they look at Donald. But anyway, that's a different story. But during his actual presidency, though, right up to the end, to the time of his death, Lincoln actually suffered tremendous criticism. And not just from the, the people down in the, the South, but from the North, even from members of his own party. He was called vulgar, coarse, a grotesque baboon, a third-rate country lawyer who once split rails and now splits the country. The Illinois State Register labelled him the craftiest and most dishonest politician that has ever disgraced an office in America. And yet, it has also been said of him by those who knew him that Lincoln handled it all with a patience, forbearance, and a determination uncommon of most men. 
But, but what's said about the way that Lincoln practically handled the criticism, I think is interesting. And that is that first, he wrote much of it off as petty and simply ignored it. That's a good beginning. Don't get excited about little things that don't matter. Too many of us get worked up about things like that. Second, he answered back only when it was important and it would make a difference. That's the evaluation stage. Is there something, is there anything in what's being said? Third, he formed the habit of sometimes writing lengthy letters and venting his emotions and anger in these letters. But then he tore them up and never sent them. See, he was being honest, like we said, with his emotions, but he wasn't allowing them to control him. He wasn't allowing them to, to make him say or do anything that would start an argument or would keep the flames going. Finally, he always sought to be positive and keep a good sense of humour. Now, that's not always possible. It's not, and it certainly wasn't for Job here, but I think it is a good approach to have for normal day-to-day life. That, 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 that's a little bit, though, about the manner of Job's answer. But what was his actual answer to these critical friends? Well, when you take away his denials of the accusations that they made against him, what does he actually have to say to them, to us, and to God? Well, the first thing I think we have to say here is that there's a consistent theme, even a contrast that runs throughout these speeches that actually gives this answer away. And that is, right throughout this, Job's friends talk about God, but Job talks to God. That's the difference. Just read Job's speeches. Nowhere in those speeches does he really dwell on his loss of health or wealth or anything like that. No, Job's concern from beginning to end in what he says is his relationship with God. It's not what he's lost that matters to him. So much as the fact that their loss seems to signify that he's lost God. That God has turned his back on him. So after his friends' attacks, after their accusations of sin, and after Job's denials, what is Job's answer? I believe it's to be found in Job 23, verse 10 to 12. But he knows the way I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. My feet have closely followed his steps. I have kept to his ways without turning aside. I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. Now put briefly, what Job's saying is, I will trust in God. I don't know why what has happened to me has happened. And I don't understand it. But I know God. I have experienced his love, his mercy, his faithfulness. And I am going to keep on trusting him. I am going to keep on obeying his word. I'm going to keep on, even in this darkness, seeking his face. That's the heart 
of Job's response. He's going to keep on. Keep on obeying. Keep on trusting. And he believes that in the end of this, he's going to come forth as gold. That in some way, and at this point he has no idea how, just as he doesn't know why, but in some way he believes God is going to use what he is going through to make him a richer and a deeper person, a man of faith. The answer of Job reflects, it seems to me, the point that that so many Christians, a few of them that I've known, have reached as they've passed through times of intense suffering. I don't know why this is happening. I don't know, Lord. I know that the root of suffering in this world is sin. I know that. But why this is happening, happening to me, happening to those that I love, I don't know. But I know you, Lord. And I'm going to keep on trusting you. I'm going to keep on following you. I'm going to keep on holding on to you because I know that you will carry us through. Well, I'm going to finish now by looking at the advocate Job needs. And here we're going to look at something that we have that Job didn't have. Because you see, in the midst of his pain and his torment and despair, as he struggled towards this answer that finally he reached, Job expressed his his desperate need of a true friend rather than these friends that he had. Job 6.14 says a despairing man should have the devotion of his friends even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. But my friends are as undependable as intermittent streams. And then in Job 9.32-33 Job takes this on there just a stage further as well as a, a true friend. He says he feels he needs an advocate. He needs someone to represent him, to stand in his place and represent him before God. That's what he says. God is not a man like me that I may answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there was someone to arbitrate between us, to lay his hand upon us both. You see, Job realizes. That God is just so different from us. He operates on such a different level from us. How can we bridge that gap between us and God? How can we do it? Well, we know, don't we? That we don't have to bridge that gap. Because God has done it for us. We don't have to long, as Job did, for a friend, an advocate... A mediator. We don't because God has given us all this in Jesus Christ. Jesus, who understands our human weakness and frailty. Jesus, who knows exactly what it's like to suffer undeservedly. Jesus, who on the cross bridged that gap between a holy, sinless God and a sinful humanity, is there on that cross. He paid the price of our sin that brought suffering into this world. As John says, 1 John 2, 1 and 2. 
He says, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. An advocate. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. You see, we might be like Job. In that we go through our times of anguish and pain and suffering. We might be like Job in that we arrive at that answer. That though we cannot understand, yet we know God. And so we'll keep on trusting, keep on walking with him. We might be like Job in these ways. But one way we are different from Job is that we know we have the friend, we have the mediator, we have the advocate that he longed for. We know that in heaven right now, at God's right hand, there stands one who understands fully whatever pain we are going through. And knowing him, knowing that he understands, knowing that he cares, knowing that he speaks for us there, that means everything. That transforms, that has the potential to transform whatever it is we face in life as we turn to him. Whatever experience of suffering we're going through. There is that transformation available through Jesus Christ, our advocate. Let's come and take advantage of his advocacy as we come to God now in prayer. Father, you know us as people and you know that each one of us here at different times has gone through really tough times. Some of us, maybe it differs in degree, maybe some of us feel certain things more deeply than others, but Lord, there's not one of us who hasn't felt life to be tough and difficult at some point. And Lord, it's difficult when we feel that we're alone, but help us tonight to realize that we are never alone, that we have a mediator. We have an advocate. We have one who understands exactly what we feel. And he's there for us. He's interceding for us. He's praying your blessing upon us. He's ready to pour his power and the power of the Holy Spirit into our lives. He's ready to stand right by our side. But help us to reach out to you. That we might know you as you so long to be known. This we pray in Jesus' name.